I'm standing at the bank of the East River in New York City, just down the block from my apartment. The sun is shining, and it's a beautiful April afternoon. Looking across the river, I can see a building that I've passed dozens of times throughout my life, the United Nations headquarters. And it's there, back in 1989, that world leaders gathered for the 44th session of the UN General Assembly. At that meeting, something big happened. The UN adopted the Convention on the Rights of the Child. We must build on this success by acting this year to approve the Convention on the Rights of the Child. The agreement laid out a then-radical idea that children are not merely passive objects requiring parental care, but individuals with a distinct set of rights. The treaty said that kids should be guaranteed freedom of expression, a life free from violence, and access to health care and education, among many other things. The convention has become the most rapidly and widely ratified international human rights treaty in history. But more than 30 years later, some of the children born from sperm egg, and embryo donations feel like they've been excluded from this monumental document. So, in November 2019, donor-conceived activists took their concerns halfway across the world, nearly 4,000 miles from New York, to another major UN site in Geneva. Every child has the right under the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which we celebrate here today, to identity, to family, including biological family, and to not be bought or sold. Every child has the right to be heard. We are the products of this industry and we have not been heard or respected. We're now grown and our voices are stronger. We know what is in our best interests and what is not, and we hope you're listening. But some members of the US fertility industry couldn't disagree more. You don't need to know about your parents. What this really is is an articulation of special rights that would only come to the donor conceived. And I think that's a problem. From Sony Music Entertainment and Three Uncanny Four Productions, this is Biohacked Family Secrets. I'm your host, TJ Raphael. On today's show... Donor-conceived activists are pushing for changes that would overhaul the American fertility industry as we know it. We're going to take you inside that battle. Stay with us. When Amber found out she was donor-conceived back in the spring of 2017, she was shaken. When you go through something like this, it feels incredibly isolating. She didn't know anyone who was donor-conceived or anyone who had used a DNA test and found out something so shocking. To be frank, neither had I. She tried to talk with her friends about her experience but had a really difficult time finding support. 
it's been surprising to me going through this experience how unempathetic people can be. When Amber would talk with people in her life and tell them about the stress she was under, that she was confused, that she was deeply concerned that she didn't know where she came from, that she wasn't sure if she would ever find her donor, a lot of people just couldn't understand. There's all these stories about people who are adopted, like searching out their biological family. And for whatever reason, the general public can accept that as, yes, they should find those people. They should reconnect with their family. That's a beautiful story. But for donor-conceived people, when we search out our biological family, it's, well, you should be grateful to be born. That person's not your real parent. You already have parents. You know, this is disrespectful to your parents to, to search out this genetic connection. And I don't understand that disconnect. Amber needed help processing all of these unexpected questions and intense emotions. And it wasn't too long before she found a Facebook group called We Are Donor Conceived. She joined, and immediately she was hooked. It was a total lifeblood for me. It was a connection. I'm not a big Facebook person. And being able to share my thoughts and feelings unfiltered, especially early on when this was so painful and so raw, was tremendously helpful. The group has nearly 3,000 members. And back in the early days, it's this same group that gave Amber advice on how to track down and contact Kurt, her biological father. She was able to find a community with other people who were going through the same thing. This um, discovery was a really monumental moment in my life for about a year. I mean, I was in, like, white-hot shock. In 2015, Erin Jackson learned that she was donor-conceived. She was 35 at the time. One of the things that I realized when I found this out about myself was that I'd never given this subject much thought at all. When Erin learned the truth about her origins, she just didn't see any resources out there for people like her. So she created the We Are Donor Conceived Facebook group. On its own, it turned into so much more than that. And it became this, you know, thriving worldwide community with donor-conceived people from, you know, age 13 to 70. And I realized quickly that the space is needed. It needs to be a place where people can find support because so often people don't get support from the people in their lives that they're closest to. When Erin started We Are Donor Conceived, 23andMe was still gaining momentum. It was 2016, the company wasn't huge, but it did claim to have about a million customers worldwide. But then, they exploded. As of last year, the company said that nearly 12 million people have had their DNA sequenced by 23andMe. I've done it. Maybe you have too. But as at-home DNA kits became more popular, there have been some unintended consequences. Just open TikTok on your phone and you'll hear all kinds so, of stories. For example, I got my ancestry DNA kit two years ago, learned that my dad's not biologically related to me, um, I'm, my parents are a sperm donor, I'm not an only child, and I have now 20 siblings. So as more and more people are learning the truth about their origins, more and more people are also finding their way into the We Are Donor Conceived group. 
there's a lot, real lack of understanding about what being donor conceived is and what it entails and the the deception from your own parents. That's something that a lot of people struggle with or just the fear of rejection upon meeting these new family members. There's just so many layers of difficulties and grief. About a third of people in the group are just like Amber and had no idea they were donor conceived until doing a commercial DNA test. That's according to a group survey conducted by Aaron. Many members of the community often share the same sense of confusion, frustration, and anger when they learn the truth later in life. A lot of people never find their donor, never find half-siblings, or if they do find them, they're rejected by them. There are people who have been served cease and desists by their biological parents just because they tried to contact them. As the group continued to grow, more and more people shared their stories and their exasperation. There are definitely angry, donor-conceived people that want change, and I don't see anger as a bad thing. It can be a force for social change, and and I think it's justified. I mean, you're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry that produces people, and they have practices in place that systematically deny those people crucial information about their own identity and family. When I first started working on this story, I talked to a lot of donor-conceived people who wanted to change the baby business. And many of them found their way into the We Are Donor Conceived group. But back then, the group seemed unorganized and ill-prepared to actually do anything about changing the industry that created them. We wanted to really organize and start thinking about like, okay, well, we can't all just sit in this group and cry all day. Like, we need to do something. They started talking, posting thoughts and ideas in the group about the ways they might be able to force the baby business to change. They looked around for inspiration and came across the UN's treaty to protect child rights. You know, the United Nations in the rights of a child talks about the right to one's heritage and one's origins, and that's inherently being denied here. A lot of folks in the group saw this treaty and thought, hey, what about us? But the United States is the only UN member state that hasn't adopted the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Their search didn't stop with the treaty, though. They also looked around for other ideas and past victories that could guide the way. The Adoptee Bill of Rights became law just a few hours ago as of midnight last night. As We Are Donor Conceived organized, they found inspiration in the adoptee rights movement, which has had some major legislative successes in the recent past. So that's been kind of our new approach, is like finding legislators who have worked on adoption rights, surrogacy rights, any legislation around kind of like birth identity process, for lack of a better term. Those people seem to get it. To be totally clear, the adoptee rights movement has successfully advocated for many states to open birth records for children who have been adopted, records that were once out of reach. So, donor-conceived activists have watched, they've listened, and they've strategized. 
and they know their fight can't stop at the steps of state houses or at the United Nations. If donor-conceived activists want lasting change, something with teeth, they'll have to go big. Put years of your life into trying to make the world a better place. Put your own money into it. Like, do it. Actually, you know, make your mark in a, in a better, more permanent way. That's next. Stay with us. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're crazy enough to think you can change the world, then maybe you can. Nick Isell, who was born at the infamous genius sperm bank that we discussed back in episodes four and five, has been trying to take on the baby business for a long time. Back in 2016, when We Are Donor Conceived was in its infancy, he shared a plan with the group, a tactic that, if successful, would force the industry to change in a big way. His goals were pretty ambitious. Ban donor anonymity, increase record retention time for family medical history records from 10 years. Current requirement is 10 years, and that's insufficient. As it stands, if you're a donor-conceived person, records of your family medical history can be destroyed by the time you're 10 years old. Nick wants those records retained for a much longer period across the board. But who has the power to enforce that kind of sweeping change? I've requested the FDA to increase that to 50 years. The FDA. That organization puts forth binding rules for sperm and egg donation and fertility clinics. If I'm being honest, it's always seemed kind of random to me that the FDA regulates sperm and egg donation. When I think of the FDA, I normally think of commercials for vitamins boasting their FDA approval seal, or recalls for bad salad dressing or toxic mascara or something. And that's because the FDA itself is a product regulator. Many of the common household items you start your day with are regulated by the FDA. Whether brushing your teeth or putting on moisturizer, you can trust the FDA is looking out for you. In the fertility industry, money gets exchanged for the goods. So in the eyes of the FDA, sperm, eggs, and embryos are products to be regulated. The agency is there to ensure the materials being sold are safe and free of diseases that could harm customers. 
a.k.a. parents putting donations inside their bodies. Nick's petition to the FDA hinges on the agency's role as a safety gatekeeper, a role it assumed, in part, thanks to this man. I often uh, introduce myself now by saying I am Al Gore. I used to be the next president of the United States of America. (laughs) In 1988, Al Gore was 40 years old, in his first term as a U.S. senator from Tennessee and co-chair of a congressional advisory panel on biotechnology. Assisted reproduction was hitting its stride, but it still wasn't a mainstream practice. People had questions, it was unregulated, and things in the industry were a bit opaque. So Gore commissioned a congressional study to gather data. More than 1,500 fertility clinics around the country were asked questions about their practices. This was when the AIDS crisis was raging all over the country. We already have, by all estimates, by all reliable estimates, more than a million people are infected with HIV in America today. Not symptomatic, but And when the results of Gore's study came back, there were some big red flags. The data revealed that huge numbers of American sperm banks weren't screening donors for HIV or STDs like gonorrhea or syphilis. Between 1986 and 1989, six women in the United States were infected with HIV after being inseminated with donated sperm. So the FDA snapped into regulatory mode and began drafting rules about disease testing. The agency put forth new regulations to make sure donor specimens were safe from communicable diseases like HIV or STDs. But these rules were not and still aren't about whether people born from the sale of donated material will inherit any genetic diseases. Nick thought those rules are simply not enough to protect donor-conceived people. But what could he do about it? He decided to put forward a citizen's petition to the FDA, basically a request to change its rules around screening donors. The main thing that I think I'm really accomplishing by confronting the FDA on this is forcing them to admit that in this circumstance that I'm describing, genetic diseases can be communicable diseases. Because they don't consider a genetic disease to be communicable, which is technically correct in most circumstances. I'm not going to catch your genetic cancer by hanging out in a room with you. That's not infectious in that way. But if you're my mom, I might get it from you. If you're someone who's related to me and you've passed along genetic material to me, yeah, I might inherit that condition from you. That's communicable. Nick got hundreds of comments supporting his petition. But in 2018, Two years after he asked the agency to make these changes, the FDA denied his request. I believe that financial interests and things like that have forced the FDA into a position where they are not acting in the public's best interest. The global fertility industry rakes in a lot of cash. It was worth more than $20 billion in 2020 and is projected to reach more than $45 billion by 2027. And the industry's largest group, 
the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, is staunchly opposed to the changes being put forth by We Are Donor Conceived. The reality of trying to implement some of these proposals is, would be hugely expensive and hugely intrusive. That's Sean Tipton, the Chief Public Policy and Advocacy Officer for the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, or ASRM for short. The ASRM is a big group with more than 8,000 members all over the world. They advocate for reproductive medicine, for doctors, for sperm and egg bakes, and for technological advancements in the field. They've been around for a long time and have power, influence, and lobbying money. Tipton says that new rules around record retention and ending donor anonymity is simply too much of a financial burden for the industry. And, he says, ultimately that cost will trickle down. Would the advantages be worth the monetary cost and the regulatory burden? These are treatments that are often difficult to obtain for patients for economic reasons anyway. So ultimately this cost is going to be borne by these patients. And do you want to make these kind of procedures even harder to get than they already are? The ASRM is well-positioned to push back against activist efforts. Back in 1989, the same year the United Nations adopted the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine opened an office in Washington, D.C. With this office, the ASRM had a stated goal— to keep an eye on lawmakers when it comes to reproductive health. Governments need to stay the hell out of people's reproductive lives. In the United States, the fight over reproductive freedom has been contentious, to say the least. And the ASRM is a vocal champion of reproductive freedom, from abortion rights to birth control to family building and comprehensive services for queer people. We believe strongly in reproductive freedom, and we're not big on big national bureaucracy and mandates, particularly around reproductive issues. A lot of folks, myself included, get really uneasy when thinking about laws that govern reproduction. Tipton says that if we imposed new rules for donor conception, like illegal end to anonymity or limiting the number of children that one donor can produce, we're potentially sliding down a slippery slope. There are fears that new rules could open the door for other regulations around reproduction or parental autonomy. We are very resistant to people who want to get between patients and their choice of how to, who they're going to have children with or when or how. We don't think those kind of decisions about how to build your family belong in the hands of the church or politicians or bureaucrats or people who were donor-conceived 30 or 40 years ago. By taking away anonymity in donation, Tipton says that we're taking a parental choice away, a choice in what a parent wants to tell their children about the ways they were born and how their family was formed. You should absolutely disclose to your children that they are donor-conceived or conceived with medical help. We don't think that should be required. We don't think there ought to be a legal mandate to do that, but we think that's probably good parenting. But activists feel like the attitude of protecting parental choice discounts their own existence. Babies are not objects, and they're not dreams. They're people. 
and they grow up to be adults <laughs> and they have feelings and they have wants and they have needs. And that's what Nick's FDA petition was about, centering the potential desires of donor-conceived children, not just their parents, by giving them access to medical records and identifying information about their donors. But the FDA wasn't budging, so Nick decided to call in some reinforcements. I felt that I should seek legal representation to help me make my case. Coming up, Nick takes his legal fight to the U.S. court system. That's next. Stay with us. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. After Nick hit a wall with his FDA petition, it seemed like he had run out of options. But he didn't want to give up, and there was this nagging voice inside his head. Put years of your life into trying to make the world a better place. Put your own money into it. Like, do it. Actually, you know, make your mark in a better, more permanent way. Nick decided he would not take no for an answer. The FDA might be able to dismiss a little petition, but could they ignore a lawsuit? I, I went through so many different interviews with different lawyers. There were so many of them that wouldn't even touch this. Nick was able to find a lawyer willing to take on the FDA, Michelle Rosovics. She's got more than 25 years of experience as a litigator. She's done work with doctors, hospitals, and clinics, and has taken on cases about maintaining personal health information. And now, she's representing Nick, Amber, and other donor-conceived activists in what could be a landmark lawsuit against the FDA. We exhausted multiple levels of appeals within the agency. And we pointed out to them over and over again why the laws as they were written by the FDA a long time ago, why they do not adequately protect the rights of the donor-conceived population. At its heart, the lawsuit argues that donor-conceived people have a legal right to access records relating to their conception. Rosovic says they should be guaranteed access because these records are part of their medical history and contain important health information. Under federal and state law, any other U.S. citizen can obtain their own medical records, and even those of family members if they impact their own health. The suit is also asking the FDA to change the rules so that donor records are kept by the facilities for at least 50 years instead of the currently required 10. It is such a minor burden. It's not even a burden. It's such a minor change to change from 10 to 50. It's such a minor change for the industries that collect this information to keep it to 50 years. I was curious what Rosovics thought of the argument that 
a lot of people don't have any documentation of their family medical history. But she says there's a clear difference between a person simply not having this info because their parents didn't keep tidy records and a donor-conceived person being barred from accessing this information. If an entire class of people is divested of rights by a state agency like the FDA, what the government is doing is creating a second-class citizenry. I asked Sean Tipton of the ASRM what he thought about a law guaranteeing donor-conceived people a right to medical history. He said it would be discriminatory. What this really is is an articulation of special rights that would only come to the donor conceived. And I think that's a problem. So I don't have the right to my family's ancestry and medical history. I don't have the right to know all my potential siblings or half-siblings. None of us do. And so I think if we want to impose that on everybody, then let's have that conversation. But we at ASRM have serious concerns about creating special obligations or special discriminatory practices and conveying special rights on families who are seeking to use medical technology to build their families or the children who result from those technologies. Sean makes some valid points. A lot of people may not know their parents for whatever the reason. And many people, including myself, do not know generations of medical history or ancestry. But does the fertility industry face a higher burden here? People are walking into a medical setting to create human beings. The process is slow moving, and there are so many players involved. Donor-conceived people aren't the product of a one-night stand. They're intentionally created by the medical community. Nick's lawsuit is moving through the courts, and it could take years before a conclusion is reached. But donor-conceived activists aren't sitting on their hands waiting for a ruling. They're continuing the fight in other arenas. We are donor-conceived. Well, it's not just a little Facebook group anymore. It's a legit, recognized movement with a mission to create a better future for donor-conceived people by legally forcing the industry to change. How? Well, activists put together a team of legal and public health professionals to push for regulations via a newly formed group, the U.S. Donor-Conceived Council. So the Donor Conceived Council is still gestating. Um, we are working on our yeah, people like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like a little, you know, it's like just a little tiny bunch of cells right now. Yeah. Um, but we're we're working on becoming a five hundred one c three organization, and our goal, is similar to we are donor conceived, is to be a voice for donor conceived people. But yes, our, our goals are to you know protect the rights, interests, and values of donor conceived people because we really have no representation whatsoever. In December, the U.S. Donor Conceived Council was officially incorporated as a 501c3 nonprofit in Arizona, and they've been able to act quickly. Late last year, they started working on a bipartisan bill 
the Donor Conceived Person Protection Act in New York. Instead of relying on the honor system, the bill would legally require clinics and cryobanks to collect and verify medical, educational, and criminal background information for all donors. As of this recording, it's currently making its way through the state legislature. And across the country in Colorado, the council has successfully introduced legislation that, if passed, will give people their donors' identities when they reach 18. Many members of the group also want laws that will track and regulate the number of children one donor can create. There's broad support for placing a limit on how many people can be created by one individual donor. And I found that the majority of respondents believe that number should be 10 individuals. They want to do away with the days where clinics paid super donors like Mike or Kurt to create huge numbers of children. There's a lot of people who experience psychological distress as a result of being one of 200 siblings. I mean, it really makes you feel like uh, like a product, like a clone, like a science experiment. These kinds of limits exist in a lot of countries, including much of Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. But it's not just donor-conceived people who are pushing for more accountability from the industry. Some donors are too. An Oregon doctor has filed a $5.2 million lawsuit against OHSU. This after he says his sperm was wrongfully used and he discovered he fathered at least 17 children through the hospital's fertility clinic. Dr. Bryce Cleary was a student at OHSU, which stands for Oregon Health and Science University, back in 1989. Like Amber's biological father, Kurt, Cleary says the medical school recruited him to be a sperm donor. He says the school promised only five children would ever come from his donations, and the rest of his sperm samples would be used for research. But in 2018, after doing an Ancestry.com kit, Cleary learned that he has at least 17 children. I think that the moral conflict and the emotional toll that that puts on my dad, Dr. Cleary, is extreme. Dr. Cleary's quote-unquote natural-born son, James Cleary, is a lawyer. He's representing his father in a $5.2 million suit against OHSU. The emotional weight of learning that you have a large number of children out there that are biologically related to you and, and really are made up half of your DNA is uh, emotional regardless of the situation, right? The, there's always going to be a connection with your offspring because they are literally made up of half of your DNA. And then to have that um, be a product of fraud is, I think, extraordinarily weighty. Dr. Cleary's donor offspring are here. His donations can't be undone. So James says his father is suing because of the trauma he feels. I think what weighs on him the most is the repercussions, not just on him, but on his children, both 
his natural born children and his donor offspring. I mean, you have a large number of people that have to be really conscious of who they're dating, who their children are dating, who they're potentially marrying. The idea that you could unwittingly marry your cousin, uh, that's concerning. Dr. Cleary's case is still pending. While he and his family want to see accountability, their legal fight is solitary. Only Cleary would have resolution by getting financial compensation if his suit prevails. But donor-conceived activists like Amber, Aaron, and Nick are pushing for sweeping regulations, rules and laws that have never been part of the U.S. fertility industry. Regulations that could dramatically change the baby business and reproductive medicine. There are models out there in other countries, but new laws don't always protect everyone. People think, oh, regulation will make it better. But there are absolutely examples of cases where discrimination is written into the law in a way that is really problematic. Next week on Biohacked Family Secrets, the unequal playing field that can come with new controls on donor conception. Biohacked Family Secrets is produced by 3 Uncanny 4 and Sony Music Entertainment. I'm your host, TJ Raphael. Our program is edited by Maureen McMurray. Our producers are Nick Mott, Jennifer Siegel, Shane McKeon, Krista Ripple, and Rahima Nasa. Jenny Kim is our production manager, and Alicia Baitoup composed the theme. Our fact checkers are Will Tavlin and Ava Ahmed Behi. This episode was mixed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Special thanks to Laura Mayer, Nuna Sharafadeen, Amy Eason, Jennifer Womack, and Allison Sherry. Have a question or comment about this week's show? Send me a tweet at TJRaphael or email us at biohacked at 3uncanny4.com. For 3uncanny4 and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm TJ Raphael. <laughs>